Hi, everyone. Um, is this on? No. no. Okay. I can probably shout and you all, you all will hear me. Um, I, uh, I'm Kate Powell. I'm the chair of the Pratt Contemporaries here at the library. It's the Young uh, Donors Group, and we are sponsoring um, this discussion this evening. So I wanted to welcome you all here tonight. Um, if you are um, interested in becoming more involved and hearing more about some of these events at the library that are especially geared to young people, please let me know. We have a number of steering committee, me uh, st steering committee members here tonight as well, um, and we'd love to get you um, into, uh, into the Pratt even more and more involved. We just had actually a fabulous evening here at the end of January. We had about 200 people that braved... Is that six inches of snow that night? Um, that was part of the uh, part of the snowmageddon <laughs> uh, to come out and um, and dance and drink the night away down in Central Hall. It was a black and white party. We had a great time. We'd love for you to come um, next January. So um, if you're interested, please let me know. We'd love to have you come. But tonight, um, we're very excited to have Grant Wall with us as part of our Writers Live series here at the Pratt. Um, Grant is a, you'll hear in a minute, is a, um, is a writer at, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He's had, he's wildly successful. I was just realizing, um, you know, he's had 20, how many cover stories have you had? 32. Oh, I'm sorry, not that anyone's counting. <laughs> but he's covered uh, three Summer Olympic Games. He's covered the um, NCAA tournaments. Um, and uh, and we're very we're really excited to have him tonight. And I, I'm actually going to ask um, a good friend of Grant's to come up and introduce him because he knows much more about him than I do. Rick Corcoran is a steering committee member of the of the Pratt Contemporaries and is involved here at the library. Um, and he is a um, partner in Slate Capital Group. And you may know he invests in. Um, a number of small and mid-sized businesses here in the Mid-Atlantic region, including Let's Dish um, and Coastal Business Machines. So I'd like to have Rick come up and talk about his Princeton classmate for a few minutes. Thanks, Kate. Uh, welcome, Grant. So it's a, it's a special treat to be here tonight for a lot of reasons. I am delighted to bring a sports writer to the Pratt Contemporaries and to the Pratt Library. I've been lobbying for this, Kate can tell you, since I joined the steering committee. Um, it was very lucky that Grant lives now here in Baltimore, so it's just a, a terrific uh, delight for us. I sh should also tell you, Kate mentioned that we were classmates. Grant was uh, actually a year behind me and my wife at Princeton. And there's a little story I want to share about that by way of introduction. So back in the, the early uh, part of the second semester in 1995, Frank DeFord, who's a, a very famous sports writer and also a Baltimore native, had a seminar on sports and the American character at Princeton. And it was by application only in the American Studies Department. And Alexa and I got in, and, and Grant did not. <laughs> and the only reason I can possibly fathom that that could have happened, because he was already an accomplished writer uh, about sports for, for the Princeton newspaper, was, was just simply seniority. We, we had extra votes, and we had a trump card, and we got it, and he didn't. And it's, it's completely unfair. Um, <laughs> The reason I share the story, though, is not just to rub salt in a 20-year wound. <laughs> uh, it's because in that very first class, we sat down with, with, with Frank DeFord, and someone, I forget who it was, probably Alexa, rabble-rousing, asked, you know, why should we take sports writing seriously? And what he said, I'll always remember, he said, you know, sports writers actually have to be better than other writers. They've got to be the best writers. And he said there's a couple reasons. He said, first is the game's already happened. People know the outcome. 
And so you've got to entertain them in a way beyond just the stats. And he also said you've got a huge audience because so many people like sports, and so people are going to read your stuff, and you better be good. And furthermore, a lot of people want to do that job, and so you better be good or they're going to come and, and, and take your gig. And I think he's right. You know, when I look back, Sports Illustrated was, was one of my Bibles as a kid. I was a sports fan. And I, I can remember, you know, it would come out on Thursdays, and I'd stay up till midnight reading, reading the magazine. And, and back then it was guys like Lee Montville and Curry Kirkpatrick and, and Rick Tellender and, and, and all the titans of, of the, the, the genre. And they, those guys were magicians. They were, they were real wordsmiths. And I've often said that Sports Illustrated was, was more important for me in, in SAT prep than, than any literature that I read uh, in English class. So Grant now is part of that group. Um, if I can, can go with the sports analogy, I, I'd say he's like a five-tool baseball player. He has done all kinds of stuff in writing because he, he is a sports writer, but uh, he's a multi-talented one. He has done magazine stories on deadline. If we have time, I encourage someone to ask him about his experience with the story that really put him on the map, writing about the World Cup in France in 98. It's really a, it's a cool story about how he wrote it. He's done feature stories, like an early one on LeBron James and a recent one on John Wall. Um, really good freshman basketball player at Kentucky. He's done um, uh, takeouts. In fact, his, uh, one of his, his very famous stories is one about uh, paternity issues amongst, amongst professional athletes. And if he has time tonight, I'd encourage you guys to ask him about that story as well. Uh, he's done online stuff. He was one of the, the first to embrace the online genre. In fact, he's been doing mailbags, which is one of my favorite online genres, as, as early as 98, right? Yeah. Is that right? Um, and finally, he does books, which is what brought him to us tonight. Uh, his, his recent book, um, The Beckham Experiment, is a New York Times bestseller, and he's signing it tonight, and I, a number of you guys have read it. I read it. I loved it. thought it was terrific. A real nice mix of sports, pop culture, um, such that my wife and I both enjoyed it equally, but for very different reasons. <laughs> Let me tell you a bit about Grant, and then I'll get out of the way and turn it over to him. He's more interesting than me. So he began his journalism career as an intern with the Miami Herald in '96. Uh, after graduating from Princeton, he joined Sports Illustrated uh, later that year. He was promoted to his current position as senior writer in October 2000. Uh, as Kate mentioned, he writes about college basketball, soccer. He's on investigative reporting, all kinds of features. He's covered 12 NCAA basketball tournaments, five World Cups, three Olympics. He's gearing up for the World Cup in South Africa. He's excited for that. Uh, he first sort of uh, put on the map with his work, as I mentioned, on the story Where's Daddy back in 98, which he uh, worked on with John Wertheim, right? Is that right? Um, about the number of -of out-of-wedlock children to professional athletes. He's won four magazine Story of the Year awards. He's written 32 SI cover stories, over 200 articles. He's been to 40 states and over 26 countries. And I must say, I've seen him only a handful of times since graduation. We really keep up on on Twitter and Facebook and such because he's just always in, in cool spots. He's been robbed at gunpoint in the last year, traveling to various parts of the world. He's recently back from Africa covering a soccer game where there was all kinds of drama. He's got lots of stories. Um, when he's not writing, he likes to spend time cooking, which you can also follow on his Facebook page. Uh, running, watching movies. He includes his, his thoughts about uh, movies in his mailbag uh, with his wife, Celine, who couldn't join us today because uh, she is um, a very accomplished doctor who's out in California right now working on a project. Uh, and he's conversational in Spanish. He grew up in Mission, Kansas. As I mentioned, he attended Princeton, Go Tigers, he graduated with a BA in politics, and as I mentioned, his first book, The Beckham Experiment, which is on sale back there and for signing afterward, has been a bestseller. Um, Grant is arguably, he won't tell you this, but I will, he's arguably the best soccer writer in the U.S. right now and, uh, and one of the top ones in the world, certainly. He recently uh, had both SI and ESPN 
competing for his services, and he chose SI, uh, which is cool. Maybe you can tell you a bit about that, how that went, if we have time tonight. Um, and so if I return real quickly to my, my first story, to the injustice committed in the Princeton campus back in 1995, I would argue that, uh, that Grant won after all because he's the one that gets to write about sports for a living. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Grant Wall. It's only I'm giving this in Spanish, right? Um, thank you very much for, for coming tonight. Uh, I'm really excited to come here. and uh, I just moved to Baltimore about two years ago. My wife is a doctor and got a job at Hopkins. Um, and we're looking forward to being here for a while. Um, uh, as far as how this is going to work tonight, I thought I would uh, talk a little bit about what I do, uh, about this book that I did. Uh, I'll do a short reading, if that's all right. Uh, and then I'll just uh, you know, open it up for questions, uh, if you guys have any, whether it's about my book, whether it's about Sports Illustrated, uh, or anything else. Uh, I'm real flexible on, on all this stuff. Um, but uh, first off, just wanted to start... Um, uh, this is my first book, and uh, it came out last July, and uh, I actually first met David Beckham back in 2003 uh, when he came to New York uh, with his wife, uh, and I was writing a story on Sports Illustrated, kind of inter in Sports Illustrated, introducing him to America. Uh, at the time, he was arguably the most famous athlete in the world, probably on the top five list of most famous people in the world. Uh, I would think. And yet, at that point in America, not that many people knew who, who he was. Um, and one thing I found over the years is that uh, a lot of these big soccer stars want to be bigger in America. And so they're willing to give access to journalists that they don't normally give to people anywhere else. And uh, so I got a lot of time just one-on-one -on -one with this guy. Uh, in 2003, uh, we did a photo shoot in, uh, on a soundstage in New York. Uh, he was doing one for our magazine, and his wife, Victoria, the former Posh Spice, um, did one for some celebrity magazine uh, at the same uh, time in the same studio. And so uh, before the photo shoot, I sat down with Beckham for about an hour and just thought he was a really normal, cool-acting guy. Um, when you get him one-on-one, -on -one, he was really natural. It felt like you were having a beer with the guy. Uh, I had a really nice interview with him, um, and then they did the photo shoot, and then about halfway through the photo shoot, uh, the publicist comes over and says, you know, do you wish to speak to Victoria? And I'm like, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> um, so I go over, and Victoria's munching on a strand of grapes. You've heard this story. Um, and uh, so my first question was, uh, so, you know, how do you think you've most influenced David over the years. And she looks at me and she goes, well, I think I've really changed his dress sense. <laughs> and I go, you want to elaborate on that? Um, she goes, well, he used to wear his pants really high. Now he wears them much lower. And, and she kind of stopped and, and she wasn't smiling. She doesn't smile much. And I kind of looked at her and I'm like, this is like the worst interview I've ever had in my life. And then it got better. Um, we started talking about a few other things and, uh, and their family and their three boys. And 
Um, and it actually got salvaged. Uh, though I will never forget the start of that interview. Um, and over the years, I always got the sense from talking to him that he wanted to come to America uh, at some point to play and to, to live here. I uh, really like New York, really like Los Angeles. Um, met up with him again in 2005 uh, when he came out to California. And by that time, we sort of had a relationship. And um, uh, you know, I, I, at that point, realized this is going to happen at some point. He's going to come. Uh, I just didn't realize it would happen in 2007, which was sooner than most people thought when he signs this contract to come to Los Angeles to this really tiny soccer league in America where it's not a big money league and you know, people and players of his stature don't even consider to come to usually. So this was an intriguing development, and I uh, did another big story on him. This time it was a cover story where I went to Madrid where he was finishing up his time in Spain in early 07, and um, did another long interview there, uh, photo shoot. Um, this is the photo, actually. I'm standing about five feet away uh, when he's doing this um, in Madrid, and... Um, it was, a, it was a pretty big deal. I, I mean, at this point, it may be hard to remember, but in the summer of 2007, this was a big story in America uh, when he came. Um, that if you turned on Entertainment Tonight or looked in celebrity magazines or on the cover of our magazine, this guy was everywhere. Uh, and there were a lot of questions, you know, what's going to happen? Um, here you have arguably the world's most famous athlete, and I can argue that he's probably more famous even now than Tiger Woods. Um, well, for different reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, so he, he comes to America, and he's hurt. And um, this was a, an issue for me in particular, because by that time I had accepted a book deal to follow this guy as he comes, uh, you know, the most famous athlete in the world comes to America to try and get big here. This sounds like a good book topic. And the whole idea was I was going to follow him around everywhere he went that first year and write about it, be behind the scenes, use all the relationships I've had from over the years in soccer to in people inside his own team. And he comes and he's hurt and he's not playing. And then it, you know, I, I keep traveling for a while following the team and he's still hurt. And in every press conference he's talking about his ankle. And, and you know, finally he gets really you know, injured badly, and I had this horrific, you know, moment where I'm like, this is just going to die, this book, and thankfully, the good people at Crown Publishing um, decided, to, they just said, look, follow the team in 2008, and we'll come out a year later with the book, and um, that's what we ended up doing, and it really made the book, I think, a lot um, a lot more interesting because he played in 2008 and you never know how these things are going to turn out. For all I knew, they were going to be like the best team in the league. They would win championships. They had the best players. And it turned out they were the worst team in the league. And here is this guy who's won everywhere he's been in his life and never lost like this and suddenly he's dealing with losing in a way that he has never done ever before. And for me, a, a big in, you know, part of this book, I don't know how many of you have read it, but um, was this clash of cultures. Here's this guy who makes $50 million a year coming into a locker room of teammates who make, in some cases, less than $20,000 a year. And it's a crazy, crazy situation to actually be on the inside of this and talk to guys about what it's like to go out to dinner with Beckham and how they think he's a good dude 
and they like talking to him and then the check comes the first time and then there's this kind of weird uneasiness because a lot of these guys have second jobs a lot of these guys um have to room with each other have roommates on the team um uh, one of the guys actually lived with his parents um and beckham didn't pick up the first check uh they went to a steakhouse in dc together and uh you can argue on both sides of this, and I've had some interesting debates with people. You know, should he have, should he not? Um, you know, some of the players were like, my money's as good as his money. I don't, you know, need that to happen. But it, it was kind of symbolic about what it was like inside this team. It was almost like when Michael Jordan played minor league baseball for a season and what that was like inside the team. Um, but one thing that fascinated me, because this was my first book, um, was that I would be getting these one-on-one -on -one interviews all along the way. I would travel with the team. I was based in Baltimore, but I'd be flying out to L.A. all the time. And even with guys inside this team that I knew, a guy like the top American star who's also on the team, this guy Landon Donovan, um, I would be doing these interviews, and I was still working at Sports Illustrated during this stretch. And at the beginning of a lot of these interviews, a guy like Donovan would ask me, is this for the book or for the magazine? <laughs> and he wasn't the only one who was doing this. And it was always for the book. Actually, you know, things didn't go so well for Beckham after he got there on the field, and so there wasn't a lot of interest for another magazine story for a while, which was fine with me because I was getting good stuff in the book. Um, but it was fascinating how different, how much they would tell you if they knew it was for the book than if it was for the magazine coming out that week. And the candor was so stunning to me sometimes, I just would sit there and just let them talk. And the more I was around, the more comfortable they were with me. And they would tell some very positive stories about Beckham. Um, he's good with kids. He signs autographs. He's got millions of people coming at him all the time, asking for things. And he's very accommodating. Um, but they also, after a while, decided that he wasn't a good captain, uh, that uh, he never called a team meeting when they lost. Uh, they went on a, a winless stretch for months. Um, and... Uh, and the other, the American star, in the end, felt like Beckham checked out on the team at the end of the 2008 season. And Beckham had never been criticized like that ever before by another player. And so it was always interesting when they would say, is this for the book? And I go, yeah, sure. And that's something that I'm grappling with, actually, right now as a magazine writer, now that I'm back full-time with the magazine, is when I go into a story somewhere, I'll parachute in for three, four days, maybe a week, and I'll get really good access to the people involved, but there is a level of, of intimacy and their willingness to share their real thoughts that was very different for the book. And after doing the magazine for 13 years, it made me wonder, like, how much am I missing? when I go and do a magazine story. Um, because there's all this stuff that was out in the media that, at the time, that they were telling me what was really going on. 
uh, inside the team. And for me, that was really interesting and a very rewarding part of, of the book process that once you realize you're on the inside um, and you're getting what's the real story, um, makes me want to go out and do another book as I try and make my magazine stories maybe hopefully even more compelling um, over time here. Uh, but I did find that interesting. Um, there's a short reading I was going to do here, um, which I think sort of illustrates the uh, clash of cultures that took place. The setting actually is Toronto, Canada. And this is in 2007, um, the first road trip that the team takes uh, with Beckham. Uh, alongside them. If you stood inside the velvet-roped VIP section in Toronto's Ultra Supper Club just before midnight on August 5th, 2007, you would have thought you'd stepped into a time warp back to 1977, to the days when the New York cosmos of Pele and Giorgio Canaglia partied with Andy Warhol and Bianca Jagger and the gang at Studio 54 in Manhattan. For the Galaxy players, that night in the Supper Club, the hottest nightclub in downtown Toronto, was the first time they felt like a super club. On the team's opening road trip with David Beckham, L.A. had tied Toronto 0-0 earlier in the evening, an ugly game that was now being redeemed by the packs of pretty young things packing the open-air dance floor, waiting in block-long lines outside the club, and flashing eye-popping amounts of skin at the Galaxy players, all in the hope of being invited with one crook of an index finger inside the velvet rope. Joe Cannon took a sip of his drink and surveyed the scene. For nine years, the Galaxy's all-pro goalkeeper had waited for this, waited for MLS to feel like the spectacle of the NBA and the NFL, waited for gorgeous women in skin-tight sequin tops to flash come-hither looks his way just because of the team he played on. Cannon knew this would happen once Beckham arrived. Wasn't that what he'd said at Kobe Jones' birthday party in June when one of the players' girlfriends had asked if Cannon was dating anyone? Nah, he replied, I'm kind of waiting for David to get here. <laughs> what does that mean, Alan Gordon asked. You know, all the girls. Gordon couldn't take it. Joe, what do you think is going to change, he asked. Seriously, you're still the same person. Like a girl is going to want to get with you just because David Beckham is on the team. What are you going to do, pull a little Beckham out of your pocket and say, see, look, here I am? No, dude. Now look. For one night, at least, Cannon had sweet vindication. Who knew if it would happen again? This was a team function, after all, and Beckham was obligated to be here. But for now, Cannon couldn't let go of the thought, everyone wants to be inside this VIP section because we are the Los Angeles Galaxy. It was an intoxicating feeling due only partly to the free bottles of Patron and Grey Goose being passed around like water jugs on the practice field. For it wasn't just the women who were trying to get in, lying to bouncers and snatching VIP passes. Men were pleading with Galaxy players too. I know Ante, I know Joe, can you get me up there? Yet Cannon was also fully aware that none of this, the VIP section, the free drinks, the women, would be happening if it weren't for one individual, the global icon who was talking quietly with some teammates at a corner table behind the velvet rope. Every once in a while, Beckham's hulking bodyguard, Shane, who everyone said was once an ultimate fighter, would let in a fan for an autograph or a picture. 
As the music thumped and the VIP section filled and the, and the clock struck 1 a.m., Galaxy midfielder Peter Vianis tried to wrap his mind around the strangeness of it all. How does Beckham deal with it, he wondered, the notion that if he were to get up and walk to the other side of this club, everyone else would suddenly migrate to that section as well. How would the other players deal with it, too? For his part, Gavin Glinton wanted to keep things in perspective. We know, we know why it's that scene, you know what I mean? But the dreadlocked reserve forward was too busy chatting up some runway model types to worry about what was going on in everyone else's heads. If these were the perks that came with being David Beckham's teammates, then playing the real-life versions of Turtle from HBO's Entourage wasn't so bad a deal. The road trip had plenty of other benefits, too. All the players had been given new Hugo Boss suits for official events, courtesy of an agreement the team had made with a clothing designer for the rest of the season. Instead of staying in the usual MLS-mandated Reed Mediocre Hotel, the Galaxy was using one of its two exceptions for the season to lodge at the fancy Meridian King Edward downtown. What's more, the hotel stay was free, the result of a deal the Galaxy had reached with the Toronto promoter. As part of the pack, the Galaxy players also got a free shopping spree at the Roots Clothing Store and free meals and drinks at the Ultra Supper Club. In return, those outfits publicized their connection to David Beckham and the suddenly sexy L.A. Galaxy, leading to the mob scene at the dance club. We were riding David's coattails, general manager Alexi Lawless said. The welcome mat was laid out wherever we went. Perhaps, but Beckham's handlers were hardly thrilled that he was being used so nakedly for free hotel stays and shopping sprees. They made sure no such local promoter deals ever happened again. Even Lawless was uncomfortable with what he had witnessed from the Galaxy's players in Toronto, most of all the 0-0 result against a terrible expansion team. You guys all have to understand, Lawless announced to the team at dinner one night. All of this comes with a price, and don't for a second think that if this guy, he pointed to Beckham, wasn't on our team that we'd be getting this. It's all because of him. Thank you, David. It's been wonderful, but at least David understands this comes with a price, and you pay that price on the field. Beckham had opened an entirely new world for the Galaxy. For the first time in its history, the team was flying charters instead of using commercial airlines on this 10-day, three-city road trip to Toronto, Washington, and New England. MLS had always forbidden charter flights, claiming they provided a competitive advantage, although the players reasoned that the ban was the result of the league's cheaper owners not wanting to be pressured into an arms race. Don't you want to have a competitive advantage in everything that you do, Lena Donovan asked? MLS had relented somewhat upon Beckham's arrival, allowing the Galaxy to charter on his first road trip due to security concerns, and AEG, the team owner, had sprung for the expense. For most of the players, the flight from LAX to Toronto was their first non-commercial trip. When the flight attendant came to offer Alan Gordon a pre-takeoff cocktail, he looked around at the first-class leather seating, the lie-flat beds, and the fully-stocked bar up front. "'Let me tell you something, ma'am,' Gordon said, turning on the charm. This is nicer than my apartment. (laughs) The flight attendant laughed. No, he replied. I'm serious. (laughs) And that's all of that. Um, So is that sort of clash of cultures that really defined for me a lot of the reporting interest I had? And it it was good to talk to Beckham. It was good to talk to everyone else who was involved, but uh, that was a big part of the book. Um, Are there any questions you guys have, whether it's about the book or anything else? I thought you were going to ruin my question, but compare you were one year old or something, but Pele versus... 
that was it was real similar. Right? At the start, it was yeah, um, because Pele had come to New York in 1975, I think, um, as the most famous soccer player in the world, wanting to bring this sport, the world sport, to America. And in a lot of ways, he he made you know real progress in that. Um, the progress in that. Um, more people in America learned about the sport. He was really an ambassador uh, to bring the sport to America. Um, and he was good. They won championships. Um, that was the thing. One big difference between Beckham and Pele is just how good these guys were. Pele is probably the best player in the history of the game, and at least in the top two. And you know, Beckham has never been the best player in the world, um, or really the best player on his own team, um, but I don't want to like, like un, you know, overstate that he's a pretty good player to the point where people think he's so overrated now that he's actually better than people think. Um, you know, he's still good enough to play in Italy right now for the next couple of months. He'll probably be on the England team at the World Cup, um, playing against the U.S. team. They play each other in the opening game on June twelfth. Yeah. I'm kind of curious because I know the second um, the year that you were at the book, the LA Galaxy were terrible. Mm-hmm. And of course, this past year they make the MLS Cup and the shootout. And, um, so I, I know you weren't there this past year. But I was there actually for parts of it. What, what changed in that one year? I mean, was it bringing in Bruce Arena? How, how did all the. Did, I mean, how did they get that right so that Beckham is advertised as. I followed this team really closely, traveled with them in 2007 and 08, uh, and they were just awful in 08. Um, and they fired everybody, the coaches, uh, the GM, uh, on the same day in August of 08 and hired um, the former U.S. coach, Bruce Arena. And I am amazed, having been around the team this last season, to see how much of a difference one coach can make. I think it's a huge part of it. Now, granted, the players have had a lot to do with it, and he brought in new players. Um, And what had happened, too, was that this book came out in July, in the middle of the season, right as Beckham was rejoining the team. And the explosive part of the book comes uh, toward the end when Donovan, the U.S. uh, best player, just rips Beckham a new one, basically. And... Uh, This was in the Sports Illustrated magazine excerpt that came out in early July and became a pretty big news story globally. And so suddenly you have a huge challenge where the two best players are publicly sniping at each other, kind of like what Shaq and Kobe were doing in L.A. a few years ago when one of the guys just had to leave at some point. And for me, um, the coach was amazing in how he dealt with that. Uh, I actually just wrote the new afterword uh, for the paperback last week about this past season and how things turned around and they went from being just about the worst team in the league to getting to the championship game. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that went on behind the scenes. How do you, how do you coach? Like if you're, um, you know, like uh, the coach before, we you know, Rude Hollett and, and the other, Frank Gallup, I guess, was here. Mm-hmm. How do you coach a guy, how do you coach a bunch of guys that make $20,000 and then you coach a guy that makes $50 million. I mean, how, how do, I mean obviously, Hullet didn't do a very good job, but he's beyond. I mean, yeah. He's far in his own right. But I mean, how did Arena, how 
how did he take, and, and well, you've got Beckham, but then Donovan, who was arguably the most well-known American. Mm -hmm. How do you balance those three kind of entities? Um, I, early on, Arena brought Beckham in uh, and said, we have to hold you accountable just like we hold everyone else accountable on the team. And um, we think you're not in great shape right now. It was later in the season. He had just made a special trip to the closing ceremony of the 08 Olympics to promote like the London 2012 games. Um, and he, he circumnavigated the globe. Um, and it was not something he had to do. And the team had lost like 10 games in a row. Um, and so his teammates were kind of like, what is up with that? Um, and, and the coach actually was in a tricky spot because Beckham could have said, who are you to be telling me something I don't want to hear? And actually, that's one area where I really respect Beckham is that he's, he is very professional most of the time in how he deals with people. And... Um, and to Arena's credit, he said to him, look, you know, we got to hold you accountable, and, and this needs to get better, and, and Beckham responded pretty well, um, especially the following year when he was being criticized a lot, came back, and then they started winning again. Yep. I have two, two quick questions. One is about Donovan. Mm -hmm. I thought Donovan grew up in that two-week period. Mm -hmm. I think that's before and after. Really, because he... For the first time, you said, all right, I'm the leader of, A, this team, and B, you know, potentially the national. Which two-week period are you talking about? When, when the Sports Illustrated article. Uh, I mean, when he went on, I mean, I mean, I remember when he was a 17-year-old kid. Mm. You know, I mean, he, he never wanted to take anything on the chin. You know, and, right. you know, he'd say something, then take it back, and then kind of, kind of give it again and take it back again. But he, he, he took it all. Yeah. And, and what, what really impressed me is then he turned around and went to England. Yeah, that's where he is you know, right now. I'm doing well. So the other question, at least the other question, is that um, what was what was the when when the book came out? How were you received, or how was the book received in England? Um, the top sports columnist called it the soccer book of the year, uh, which was nice to hear from for a book written by an American, um, and it got some really nice reviews. Um, it actually sold better, which surprised me in the U.S. The book did. Uh, when I was writing it, I thought the book would sell. If it didn't sell in the U.S., it would at least sell abroad. And it was just the opposite. And I was told that there's a little bit of Beckham fatigue in England, um, which kind of makes sense when you see like the tabloids there and how often he's in there. Um, but you know, the book sold well here. Um, and I don't know. It, it just the the release came at a, at a good time. Uh, the book came out with all this newsworthy stuff. And, you know, a lot of things worked out with that. But What's that? Can you tell the story where you had your little press conference? There is a YouTube clip of me encountering Beckham um, after uh, the book came out um, at a press conference in New York. And, you know, we actually know each other a little bit because we co uh, covered him over the years, probably interviewed him more than most journalists, if not all of them. Um, and he's a guy who... It's very interesting. Even though we had a, a positive relationship based on the SI stories I had done, his people still wanted a million dollars for him to participate one-on-one -on -one in the book, like to sit down with me for interviews. And in England, that's the way they do things, okay? I can kind of understand that. But here, if I'm writing a book, I don't pay the people I'm interviewing. 
you know? And, and everyone else on the team was talking to me exclusively and one-on-one and stuff. So I knew that Beckham would be doing interviews with media people all the time, before and after every game, more so than he'd ever done in Europe. So his voice is all over the book, and I was asking him questions throughout, but they just didn't want to have him sit down with me one-on-one. And I think my feeling was that that probably in the end, because I don't think this is a takedown book on Beckham at all. I think there's, it's just a real book about what happened, good and bad. And um, yet his people have little tolerance for any bad. And so they weren't big fans of the book, um, at least about certain sections. And uh, so when the book comes out, we have, there's a press conference in New York for his first game. And uh, I ask a question, and uh, his response was, it was funny because it mirrors what some of the other guys had said to me during the reporting, was, is this for your, uh, for your magazine or for your next unauthorized book? <laughs> and, uh, and he had plenty of time to prepare you know, what he was going to say with his handlers. I didn't have a lot of time on, on, on my end. I said, well, this may be authorized, but it may not be as interesting. Um, and, you know, we've come across each other since then. I don't think I'll probably ever get a one-on-one interview with him again, <laughs> at least for a long time, just because his handlers uh, felt like they took a, a bigger hit than he did in the book. Because I, I go into a lot of detail explaining how this, the machine works behind him. And so... Uh, so, yeah, my guess is uh, we won't be doing any one-on-ones for a while. But there's a clip on YouTube if you want to do a search. Yeah. Uh, you said you weren't sure if, uh, you, if Beckham had ever been the best player on this team. Do you think that uh, statement is true even in his glory days on Manchester United? Yeah, probably. Um, he, was, he was finished second in the World Player of the Year vote in, like, in 99. But... I would say he was probably one of the top two or three guys on that team. I would say probably Roy Keane was a better player uh, for those years. Not, I, mean, I don't mean to like down, down, downgrade the guy. I think he's a heck of a player, you know? Yeah. yeah. If uh, Packard was bound to determine to come to the United States at some point and did, mm-hmm. uh, could he have made a better choice? I've always thought he's more of a New York guy. Uh, he likes that city. I think he went to Los Angeles because of his wife. Um, and his, you know, his kids like living there. He likes living there. Um, but if it was just him alone, I think he would have gone to New York. Do you think the story would have played out similarly? Um, the team in New York's terrible, too. Um, I don't know. It's hard to know. I mean, there's a lot of questions I ask. What if he hadn't been injured when he got here and he had all this attention and had been able to actually use that by going on the field to get people more interested in soccer? You know, a lot of what ifs. Yep. What do you think was the actual effect of the Beckham experiment on U.S. professional soccer? Where do you see it going? Right. I mean, here's my theory, is that I don't think it's ever going to be the NFL. Um, but I do see it. I've been doing this now for 13 years, and I, and I compare what things are like now to what things were like then. 
and I see how big this World Cup this year is going to be, I think the World Cup is like a big-time mainstream sporting event now in the U.S., and you'll probably get sick of it. Uh, ESPN is already advertising it a ton. Um, the league here, I think, that's a tougher one because they are still losing money, uh, and they don't they aren't in a position really to compete with the top leagues in Europe. They're good at producing young American players, but they still haven't found a way to make a, a lot of money uh, on soccer in America on a regular basis. So I don't know. I've, I've wondered if it's going to be like track and field where the U.S. produces these, you know, some great athletes, some of the best athletes in the world, but it's just not that big of a spectator situation in the U.S., and that may be the case. Yep. Yeah, there's one theory that it's not as big in the U.S. because it's not television-capable, uh, that the action doesn't stop every 10 minutes you get commercials. Right. And therefore, it's not going to get sponsored, and it's not going to get the big you know, following that football and baseball and basketball. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's why soccer is going to take care I don't think it's that so much. I, I, you know, it, a game only lasts two hours. If you watch a baseball game now, you're going to watch that game for four and a half hours. And... It's too freaking long. I mean, and I used to really like baseball. Still do sometimes. Um, and I do think maybe there's something to be said for like the NFL having all these breaks and you know for commercials and stuff. But it's not like soccer's lacking sponsorship. You know, Nike's really behind it. Um, Gatorade, McDonald's. If you look at the World Cup, the 12 biggest sponsors, probably 10 of them are American companies. Um, it's just a matter of where they can get the eyeballs. And slowly they're getting more here. But if you look at, at the TV ratings for this league here, it, it gets beat by Scrabble, you know, still. So it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. Do you get a sense of where Beckham's professionalism came from? Was it his upbringing in the English system? Or? I think it's part of it. Um, I think... Uh, he's pretty exceptional. This guy's been the captain of England, which is really looked at almost as a kind of diplomatic post uh, in England. It's a hugely important, uh, highly respected position. He was captain for like five and a half years. Um, and if you talk, and I've talked to the coach at Manchester United, Alex Ferguson, who had Beckham when he, from when he was 15, 16 years old, and he's told me, like, you know, he was always the hardest working player on the team as a kid. He would always stay after and work on these free kicks that became his signature around the world. And to hear Ferguson, who's like one of the, the greatest coaches in the history of the game, talk about it, what he said was funny. And, and then he met his wife and, um, and got into this whole, got a whole new image, really, um, where he was into you know, this whole celebrity thing and, and being photographed and being covered in the media. And it's made him far, you know, tremendously famous. You know, this idea that he's famous for what he does and is connected to her has really multiplied, you know, it's got this weird multiplier effect. Um, the weird thing for me, actually, when he was in L.A. was as he dealt with all this losing, he wasn't working at 100%, his teammates told me. And that had never been said about David Beckham ever before. And it was almost as if he felt like, well, if not many people are watching me here, I don't need to do this in this tiny little league. Yeah. Um, as a journalist, do you think that yeah, I guess the, the wonderful actors that you got before 
to all the players, everyone, was because of the overall excitement of Beckham coming and MLS finally getting the spotlight shone on them, or was it just the fact that you were writing a book so it won't get published like that next week or that next you know, two weeks? I think soccer's at a moment in America where they're willing to give you a lot more access uh, than the NFL. I think this is what it must have been like writing a book about the NFL in the 1960s. Um, and it was great because oftentimes, you know, I was the only journalist around. And so having the chance to sit down with these guys, and I've been covering the sport for over a decade, so I, I knew a lot of these guys going into it. Um, they'd seen what I'd done before. And the only agreement they had, and I really give them credit, was uh, I'm just going to follow this where it takes us, whether it's to championships or a bad team, and write what I find. And, and when things started going badly on the field for them, those guys kept talking to me, and they could have said, buzz off. And um, that was interesting to see, but made the book better, I think. Yeah? During the travel phase of your getting ready with the book and mm-hmm. then the actual writing crunch, did SI lessen your other tasks at the magazine, or did you have to maintain a full load, or how did that work? Uh, I maintained a full load during the two years I was reporting the book, um, and would occasionally write some short pieces um, from important games for our website, maybe. But uh, it was a, a huge load. I'm really busy, as they can tell you, even when I'm full-time alone with the magazine. Well, from the time you stopped traveling to the time the book got punched out, how, how many days, weeks, months were you actually writing it? It was crazy. Um, I took a leave from the magazine um, at the end of the 08 season, which ends at the end of, right, right at the beginning of December. And my manuscript was due March 1st, 2009 three months for uh, the book. And actually, my wife was uh, working in South Africa for a year uh, through her Hopkins job. And so I went and holed up in a room in Johannesburg and wrote seven days a week. Has uh, Mr. Spielberg called for the book? <laughs> uh, not yet. Um, I, wrote, I wrote, ended up writing 112,000 words in 72 days, which I don't tell to too many people because then they're like, oh, my God, uh, you know, this book's going to be quickly written. Uh, and I feel really good, actually, about the, the, the finished product. Um, and I, what really helped was because I had what I felt was good reporting, I didn't have to mess around with it all that much. I, I, I just told the story with what I had and had some 3,000-word days, had some 500-word days, and... You know, and got it done. Do you think your background as a reporter That helped. I mean, like, you know, from you know, some of these crazy deadlines I've had over the years for SI have really kind of conditioned me to writing quickly and, you know, hopefully writing well. What's that soccer story that your friend alluded to about that got your fame at SI? Oh, uh, the 1998 World Cup final. Uh, it was my first big deadline story for the magazine. Uh, I was in France. Uh, it was France against Brazil. Um, I had never been on deadline for a story and um, an overnight like that. And uh, they weren't sure if they wanted me to do it because I, I think I was, I was like 24, 23. Um, and... Uh, the other two writers that SI had, their older writers, had both gone back home for varying reasons. 
And uh, so they were going to send one of them back, and I said, let me do this. I can do this. And uh, to show my experience, I forgot to take my laptop to the game. And didn't realize, didn't think France was going to win, and they did. And so there were three million French people in the streets afterwards celebrating. And the bus I was on, trying to get the five miles or so back to our apartment near the Bastille, was in gridlock at like you know, two in the morning still. So I got out and walked across the city and walked down the Champs-Élysées, walked down you know, past the Arc de Triomphe, um, just through this massive humanity and was writing the story in my head as I walked. And um, got back at five in the morning. Uh, thankfully, there was a time difference. All our stories are due at 9 a.m. Eastern. And so I got in by 3 p.m., 2,500-word story that read really well. And, and they were like, okay, yeah, there's, like I said, you can do this. And uh, so then they were comfortable with me. You know, I was doing college basketball at that point, too. The tightest deadline of the year at the magazine is always on the Monday night of the Final Four. We close on Monday nights hard. So to make a long story short, what you have to do for that story is write 70% of it the day before, the middle part, and have reported the heck out of it to get good stuff that nobody else has in this ridiculously heavily covered media event. And then after the game, you've got like two hours to write a top, a bottom, and if you're tricky, stick something in the middle. And hopefully it's seamless enough that the reader thinks you wrote the whole thing after the game was over. And it's fun when it works and... Very, very, very stressful. Yeah. Um, Grant, I guess you could tell us, um, the U.S. men's national team coach is Bob Bradley, who is a Princeton guy, coached at Princeton for many years. I'm curious if you developed a relationship back then when you were a sports writer, and also maybe going a little bit, uh, is kind of your affinity towards soccer, when you played or coached, or how you ended up uh, writing so much about soccer? Bob would tell you, this is the U.S. coach, that I've been asking him stupid questions since 1993. Um, I, was, I covered the, uh, the soccer team for the school paper uh, the year they went to the Final Four, and he was the coach of the team. And um, uh, we had no idea that we'd be in this position now, I guess. And so it's, it's interesting. Um, you would think it would help me get a lot of like inside scoops on the team, and yet he is the most difficult coach, far more difficult than the previous coach, to get inf- uh, information out of. He just does not have a big uh, positive feeling toward the media. He and I get along fine, but he just doesn't give up much. I have to get my stuff from other sources. Was there anything else? And then your background in soccer? Uh, like most kids in this country, I played until I was 12, quit. Um, and I was in Kansas. Uh, I was into you know, other sports too, but then got back into it in college uh, that 1990 World Cup was part of it. Watched that, um, got into it, and then did my senior thesis on politics and soccer in Argentina, and really enjoyed it. Fell in love with the game again. Um, covered the '96 Olympic soccer tournament uh, when I was in Miami. They had some games there, and uh, got to Sports Illustrated. And no one else wanted to write about the sport. It was a way for me to get some stuff in the magazine. And they're like, oh, you know something about soccer. Um, so 
the weird thing is that now there's actually demand among the riders there to cover the sport. That's one of the big changes that's taken place. And so this, this, it's funny to me, you see how much money ESPN's putting into it. Um, this decision I just made to go to you know, stay at Sports Illustrated, like I never imagined that there would actually be demand for soccer riders in this country. It, it's a bizarre situation that I'm kind of tickled by. But I just, I just, you know, I just like the sport. Yeah. Going back to college basketball, do you see any sort of comparison to the, the clash of cultures you talked about in the book between the Kentuckys and the Kansases of the of the world and the smaller schools when, when those schools visit those campuses, the sort of having it on the other side of it? A little bit. I mean, like, upper-level college basketball is a professional sport in, in many ways, some more illicit than others. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, like, when I go and do a story on John Wall at Kentucky, and it's on the cover of the magazine, um, you know, that's not happening at these smaller schools. And so, you know, the NCAA basketball tournament's a $6 billion television contract. And so it's a little ridiculous to hear people at the NCAA talking about uh, how money isn't part of, shouldn't be part of the college game. Well, it's, it's part of the college game. Um, but I, I love college basketball and soccer. Actually, I think there's a lot more in common than most people realize or think about. Uh, I think they have two of the most passionate fan followings in any sports you'll ever see. And uh, I also think that basketball and soccer, for there's a reason why those are the two most popular sports in the world. Basketball is actually catching up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, where do you think the MLS fits in in terms of quality of play compared to, say, like, everything when you've got the Premier League and the championship and then below that? Is it, like, championship level or below that? Um, probably second tier uh, with the best teams in the league here. I mean, it's, it's kind of like AAA baseball, AA baseball maybe here. Um, and that's tough now because more and more you can watch all these leagues on television. I just spent the afternoon watching the Champions League on TV yesterday too and so I think the league here has to figure out how to close the gap in what's on the field because even the soccer people here are more you know it's it's easier now to to see the highest levels and Americans tend to want to see the best yeah there's been a lot written in the media in the last month about concussions um can you compare what the scene is in this country, the concerns that have surfaced a lot recently versus concerns in Europe, if there are any? Just give us yeah. a feel for that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting last week that the captain of the U.S. women's soccer team took an indefinite leave of absence because she's worried about concussions. She's had them. And you're seeing that more often now. And, and the the heightened concern in the NFL isn't is causing a, a big impact elsewhere too. And obviously in soccer you're using your head a lot, not just against the ball, but you're cracking into other people's heads sometimes too. And I've known a couple of guys I've covered over the years who have re- had to retire because of concussions. Good players. Uh, this is the first women's example that I know of. Um, and I haven't really seen any evidence of that in in Europe yet. And I do think of players taking off time. 
there's a real there, there's a real kind of old school mentality in European soccer um, about how you play the game and how you fight through pain, and it's kind of like what the NFL was 10, 20 years ago, maybe, and it does make you wonder how many of you know people have had in soccer in Europe some you know bad concussion histories that never really got treated well enough. It'd be an interesting story to like the New York Times has done a great job on following this story. That would be a thing I would suggest is that they look at other sports like soccer and in other places like Europe. Yeah. I'm interested in the process um, of Sports Illustrated writers. Um, how do you all work out uh, you know, what the stories are going to be? I mean, do you pitch them to editors or editors pitch them to you? Or if you have a great idea for a story, you convince you know, somebody up the food chain that this would be a great thing to run? Uh, and you know, how, does, how, does, how do the internal process work? The longer I'm there, the more stories I pitch on my own. Uh, when I first started out the first three or four years, I was probably assigned probably 80% of my stories. Um, now I pitch, the stories that I do are probably 98% my ideas. Uh, and that just comes with time and, and them getting comfortable you know, with you having success with your stories. Um, and that's, it's good because you know, in theory... The reporters and the writers are the ones who are out in the field and should be closer to the best stories. And we, we have some editors in New York who are very good at kind of sensing trends and potential stories. Uh, so I'll, I'll get assigned something like that every once in a while. But I really like the freedom I've got. I mean, the story I'm working on right now is um, this sort of gigantic uh, World Cup preview story looking at the power of soccer around the world. And it's going to be about a 25-page story in a single issue in May. And I already went to Angola last month for the African Championship, and I'm doing a story on the Ivory Coast team. Um, and I'm going to England to do a story on the foreign influence in English soccer over the last 10 years and how it's affected their national team. So I'm going there in a couple weeks. I'm going to go to Brazil uh, and I'm trying to get into North Korea. Um, they're in the World Cup. And it's the, kind of this team nobody knows anything about. And I'm trying to sell it to the North Koreans as, you know, here's a chance for you guys to, like, have a good interaction with Americans in something that isn't political. And keeping my fingers crossed that maybe they'll you know, be up for that. They're actually playing a game in Mexico on March 17th, and I'm going to fly down there and make my pitch. That, that probably would be, but I'd also like to get inside. I'm fascinated by places that are hard to get into. Um, you know, Rick mentioned I got... What's that? Yeah, 1966, the only other time they're in the World Cup. Um, um, so, so that would be interesting. I mean, as Rick mentioned, I got mugged at gunpoint last... Um, October in Honduras. Uh, I was down there for the USA Honduras game. And that was when they were going through a coup. And um, I had the bright idea to drive across the country and just talk to ordinary folks about how the success of their soccer team was helping unify this kind of broken country. Because they got into the World Cup too. Um, for only the second time and met all these fascinating people I was doing stuff on my Twitter page with photographs and you know throughout the day and then if you're following my Twitter page it goes 
effing hell, just got mugged at gunpoint. <laughs> um, they, uh, thankfully, they only got my uh, wallet and my phone. Um, but my wife is sort of uh, counseling against the cowboy stuff, as she puts it, these days. Yeah. Okay. Right. That was, that was the last story I did in Angola. Um, the, right before the tournament started, the, bus, the team bus from Togo was attacked by machine gun fire. Um, you know, Angola just ended its civil war, like three-decade-long civil war in 2002, and they were hosting this tournament, and an independence group actually took responsibility for this. And I was already planning to go to this, exactly the place where it happened before it happened, and then my editor, who remembered my uh, mugging incident, is like, why should I send you now? And um, I got enough people on the ground there who said that I, I would be okay to convince him to let me still go. And uh, so I went. And um, for me, like, this is like some of the most interesting stuff about soccer worldwide is you're dealing with stories that have all sorts of twists and turns that because of the volume of soccer – you're going to run into some crazy stories, uh, stories that involve politics and things like that. And, and that interests me. Uh, you know, in however many ways that the sport interacts with culture and life and, and all that. Um, so, yeah, so I went there and, and wrote my story, reported on Ivory Coast, and also did some stuff for our website from being on the ground in Angola, uh, which was interesting. Great. So, last question. Yeah. I think there's a chance. Um, it's Baltimore is one of the 18 cities that is in the running. Uh, should the U.S. be awarded the bid for an upcoming World Cup to host games? And they've already, you know, they were started with like 90 cities, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't know how many of you went to. There was a a full NFL stadium for the Chelsea AC Milan game here last summer. And yeah, it was really cool. And I think that opened eyes of the people who are organizing it. And so uh, in December, uh, FIFA, the world governing body, will decide who gets the World Cup to host it in 2018 and 2022. And on the same day, at the same time, they're announcing that. And I think the U.S. is right now the favorite for 2022. Um, They do it a ways out, but... uh, (laughs) But that would be really good because, you know, the World Cup was here in 94, and that was big for the sport here. It's still the best attended World Cup of all time. Um, and I think it could really take the sport to, a, you know, an even higher level than um, 12 years from now. Yeah, and that would be great. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.